Thank you for letting us declare that, sing that. We need that because we've got a hard text to work through today. So we need the love of God to abound to us. We're uh, finishing up a series we've done on the origins of Jesus Christ. And um, so what we've seen is Joseph was not Jesus' biological father. Matthew has shown us how God has given Joseph special responsibilities in carrying out God's plan for the infant Jesus. Of course, one of those responsibilities was to marry Mary and so that Jesus could stand in the, in the line of David and be, uh, have an official right to being the Messiah. Yet it is amazing Jesus did not have a more glorious or less dangerous beginning given the events that we'll see in today's passage. But Matthew will show us how these hazardous and humble events from Jesus' origins confirm God's plan for him as Messiah. We'll see how God providentially works in the life of baby Jesus to deliver him from real danger and how he ends up living in a quite obscure place even though he is the Messiah. This, as I said, this last part of Matthew's origins of Jesus, the Messiah, is not a happy text. And I haven't heard it taught as part of an Advent series, and I can see why. So I almost abandoned ship. I thought, this is not like a good Christmas text, but it's in the Bible, and so we're going to go for it. So let me pray and ask for God's help. Father, we thank you that you show us how desperately this world needs Jesus, even in the circumstances, the, the evil circumstances that surrounded some of the aspects of his babyhood and toddlerhood. May we find hope in the fact that he survived and he was victorious in his mission, but he experienced real danger and real hazard. And you providentially, provisionally, in your goodness and your power, arrange, Father, for him to have gone through these things, even as a baby, to show us that you are in charge, that you orchestrate all things for your good and for your glory and for our salvation. So may we take heart and hope in that today. Help, help me to make it clear from this text the reality of the truth of Jesus Christ and his saving grace as Messiah. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So we'll read from Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I... Tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, 
weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. So in verse 13, we see an angel warning Joseph in a dream to take Jesus to Egypt because Herod's plotting to kill him. God is continuing to give guidance to Joseph via dreams. He revealed to him that Mary was pregnant by the Holy Spirit, that he was to marry her and that he was to name the son Jesus. Now he tells Joseph to take the child and mother to Egypt because Herod is going to search for Jesus to destroy him. Very strong word. He's really desperate to extinguish Jesus. There is an urgency to the angel's message. And if you ever get an urgent message from an angel, it's a good idea to to get moving. But just in case you need to know that. In verse 14 and 15, Joseph gets going. He takes the child and his mother under the cover of darkness to make headway on what was at least a 150-mile journey to the nearest part of Egypt from where they were. So a minimum of about a week's journey. They stayed there until Herod the Great died, which is around 4 B.C., which means Jesus was actually born somewhere between 4 and 6 B.C., just in case you're tracking those kinds of things. Matthew says this was in order to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophets, through the prophet, the prophet Hosea from Hosea chapter 11. In Hosea 11:1, God was lamenting how even though he had loved Israel and rescued her from bondage in Egypt, where he said, out of Egypt I called my son. So he's clearly referring to the Exodus. Um, he's going... Israel was was straying from him and going after other gods. Matthew didn't mean that Hosea 11.1 was was making a future prediction of Jesus' journey in and out of Egypt. What he saw in this text was uh, he recognized a correspondence between this event in Jesus' life and the way God worked with his people Israel. Matthew sees striking parallels in the patterns of God's activities in history in ways that he can't explain by just coincidence. He sees God orchestrating this at, at the beginning, as the beginning of a new exodus for God's people, even in the babyhood of Jesus. So just as God brought the, the nation of Israel out of Egypt to inaugurate his original covenant with Moses, so again God is bringing the Messiah who fulfills the hopes of Israel out of Egypt as he is about to inaugurate his new covenant. This is the first of several times when Matthew, in, in which Jesus uh, relives in, the sort, in a sense the role of Israel as a whole. 
And in this sense, Jesus is fulfilling the blessing that was promised to come through Abraham's offspring, Israel. And by the way, God is providentially orchestrating the events of your life. And so the question that you need to answer is, are you trusting and seeking him through his word? And are you trusting him as he does that? Because in his plan includes things both good and hard. So do you trust God for the hard things he's taken you through as well as for the good things? In verse 16, we see Herod is really ticked off. God's had told the Magi, the, the wise men, in verse 12, in a dream, don't go back there, don't go back to Herod because he's a bad guy. And they may have figured that out anyway, but he revealed it to them. And it, it provided for time for the family to escape, Jesus' mother and father, and Jesus. But it has resulted in frustrated rage to Herod's deadly plan Having no way to identify the specific child king, he sends men to indiscriminately kill all the, the baby boys under two years old. And this echoes another um, aspect of Israel's history where in Moses, when he was a baby, uh, the Pharaoh had made a plan and, and went successfully to kill the babies, baby boys in Egypt and spared Moses. Moses was spared. And so same thing with Jesus. Baby boys are killed. The, the deliverer is spared. About how many children were killed? doesn't tell us. But I know in the earlier days of reading this, I, I had the idea that there was a, like hundreds of thousands. And actually the population of Bethlehem was about a thousand. And with that, even in the surrounding area, there was probably no more than 20 baby boys killed. One baby boy killed is horrible, but it certainly wasn't a widespread slaughter and really fit Herod's uh, pattern. Herod had a history of killing his rivals and those suspected of conspiring against him. Some of those executed were his own family members, as I shared last week. One plan that fortunately didn't get carried out was to have all the Jewish rich people slaughtered at the time of his own death. So he had said, hey, when I die, kill all the Jewish leaders so that there will be genuine grief at his death. That's how crazy he was because he knew that people wouldn't grieve over his death, so he's going to make him grieve. So Herod is really not a good guy. He's really evil. Murder is evil, period. But the murder of children is especially heinous. As Jesus said, being cast into deep water with a heavy millstone around your neck is better than the judgment that will come upon those who destroy children. And that's been going on throughout history, hasn't it? We had that happen in Peshawar, Pakistan, where 132 youths were killed by terrorists. So it's... It's not new. It's, it's a devilish heart that carries these things out. In verse 17, we have another fulfillment that Matthew talks about. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in the Ramah weeping and, and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. The original context of this passage was in Jeremiah 31, and it's Jeremiah 31, 15. 
And actually, that whole passage is about the new covenant and the blessings that God is going to bring for his people Israel. Um, when he will restore them to their land, forgive their sins, and, and bless them with peace and prosperity. Tucked into the midst of these great promises of the redemption of Israel is this, this one verse that expresses the grief of, about the Assyrian and Babylonian exiles. So Jewish mothers have watched their sons go off to battle, some to die and others to be taken away captive to distant lands, Others were forcibly exiled from Israel to ensure the nation would not be a military threat. Rachel was uniquely qualified. So Rachel was Jacob's favorite wife. And Jacob was also named Israel. So Jacob becomes the, fa the father of Israel. His name is Israel. And, um, and so Rachel was in sorrow and grief as she gave birth to her last son, Benjamin. So Rachel's last time on this earth was in sorrow and grief. So she, she fits Matthew's pattern to see a grief of Israel's mothers grieving for her lost sons. Jeremiah personifies the grieving mothers of his day through Rachel. Like the Hosea passage that, that Matthew cited before, Jeremiah 31.15 is not a future prediction of the slaughter of the infants by Herod in Jesus' day. It's again a prophetic pattern. Matthew sees these patterns, these parallels, where Jesus is recapitulating, he's reliving the history of Israel and he's fulfilling um, what Israel was and is. God, as in Jeremiah's day, the loss of, of, of children was in the context of the promise of the new covenant. So in Jesus' day, God preserved the Messiah so that he can complete his redemption work, redemptive work for the new covenant. And in Matthew's perspective, Jesus is summarizing the whole experience of Israel as well as bringing it to fulfillment. So God is saying, Matthew is pointing out God has a plan and he's working it out. And this is not random stuff happening. And we have to ask because it feels, why didn't God stop this? And, and that, that goes for all the evil in the world. And, and God is not yet stopping all evil. We're, we're well, well aware of that. He is providing deliverance from our evil through the death and resurrection of his son. And so he's rescuing us from evil as we speak as a down payment and a preparation for the time when he will eliminate and stop all evil. In verse 19 and 20, when Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. Once again, God reveals to Joseph supernaturally through an angel in a dream so that he is able to be God's instrument in carrying out God's plans for Jesus. We have another Old Testament parallel. So this is just continue connecting Jesus with the Old Testament. When the angel says, go to Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead, his words are almost an exact quote of what the Lord said to Moses when it was safe for him to go back to Egypt after having been in exile. The Lord had said to Moses, go back to Egypt for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. As Moses escaped from Egypt to Midian for a time when his life is in danger, so Joseph and family escaped to Egypt. Jesus' escape and return was when he was a baby, and Moses' escape and return were, were as an adult. But here's the parallel. The point of the parallel is this. 
God's protection and direction of the deliverer, he is preparing for his people. Jesus is the new Moses who will deliver his people in, in a new exodus. So again, Jesus just keeps replicating the history of Israel, in, even in his infancy. In verse 21, Joseph takes Jesus and his mother and, and goes to Israel. And, and no doubt he's, going, he's go, going to go to Bethlehem, his hometown. But in verse 22, he hears that a guy named Archelaus was reigning over Judea, and he's afraid to go there. So who is Archelaus? When Herod died, his kingdom was divided between three of his sons, with Judea and Samaria coming under the rule of Archelaus. Like their father, his sons were local rulers appointed by Rome. Archelaus' rule was brief and unstable. He began his reign by massacring some 3,000 Passover participants. So you can see why Joseph was afraid to go back there, because he's got another lunatic in, in the home office. But God, in his providential care, doesn't, have, doesn't leave Joseph to figure it out for his, himself. He reveals it to him in a dream. Don't go there. <clears throat> so he goes north to Galilee, ruled by Archelaus' less crazy brother, Antipas. Now, it's time for a controversial moment. Oh, one little controversy. So, does God still reveal himself to us in dreams? It's a great way to derail a Bible study. <laughs> if you ever need to do that, you just want to sideline your Bible study, just bring that up. One place it's, it seems to be unmistakably happening is in the Middle East among Muslim peoples. Um, there are reports, report after report after report, of former Muslims having received dreams and visions of Jesus or people talking about Jesus. In fact, in, in one study, 40% of former Muslim leaders who came to Christ are now making disciples and planting churches for Jesus had, a, as a part of their journey to Jesus, a dream or a vision. It's never the one thing that, that gets them there. It's just part of what God seems to be using to um, prompt them to go to the Scripture. And many of them have done that. They, they're told in the dream or vision, go to the Scripture, and they're, or they're told, talk to this person, and, and the person comes up and shares Jesus with them. And so there are way too many reports for that to, to be just coincidence. So however it's happening, it seems to be happening there. And many, many people are coming to Christ from Muslim backgrounds. In verse 23, we see that uh, Joseph went and, and lived in a city called Nazareth. Nazareth was smaller than Bethlehem, probably had a population of 480. It didn't exist until the post-Old Testament period. It was an obscure Jewish village in the Galilean hills. No Old Testament text ever declares that anyone will be called a Nazarene. Nazareth is never mentioned in the Old Testament. So how is it that um, Matthew is saying, and the prophets say, that he should be called a Nazarene. And we're not talking about the modern-day denomination of Nazarene. The fact that this is the only place in Matthew's Gospel where he says this happened that was 
spoken by the prophets, plural, might be fulfilled implies that he is not quoting one specific text, but rather is summing up a theme found in several prophetic texts. So there's a lot of ideas on it, and I'll just give you what I think is the best one, which is naturally must be right by God's grace. Nazareth didn't have a good reputation in Jesus' day. If you um, have read John's Gospel, John tells about the early days of Jesus gathering his disciples. Philip finds Nathanael and says, Hey, guess what? We have found him of whom Moses in the Law and the Prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathanael answers, What? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Not even this, not even the song "Hair of the Dog." Oh wait, that's, that's uh, uh, sorry. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? So obviously, Nazareth did not have a good reputation. So Nazareth had a reputation of being a nothing town of, uh, or a loser village, if people even knew about it at all. But where in the prophets could this kind of idea of the Messiah be found? Unpopular, scorned. Well, Psalm 22, for example. In Psalm 22, we have the Messiah saying, My God, why have you forsaken me? Even God forsaking the Messiah? Other words in Psalm 22 include, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me, and and they make mouths at me. They wag their heads. It's very visual, isn't it? Making mouths and wagging your head. The Messiah would be mocked and scorned. Or Isaiah 53 says of the servant Messiah, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, and we esteemed him not. We didn't think much of him. What we did think of him was that he was stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. So the prophets could not speak specifically of Nazareth because Nazareth doesn't show up in the Bible until you get to the New Testament. But the derogatory associations with the term Nazarene as applied to Jesus, the supposed pretender, as some thought he was in his day, to being the Messiah, captured just what some of the prophets envisioned. A Messiah who came from the Wrong place, who did not come in impressive human glory, who didn't appeal to popular expectations, and so was not accepted by the people. It is significant that by around the time that Matthew wrote this gospel, Nazarene was already a, a derogatory term for Christians. So in Acts chapter 24, a spokesman for the Jewish leaders who were trying to have the Apostle Paul put to death or imprisoned called Paul a ringleader of that sect, the Nazarenes. You know those Nazarenes, that sect? So they were all, it was already scorned and looked down upon by the time Matthew wrote his gospel. Matthew has presented the case for the fact that Jesus is the Messiah by selecting aspects of his origins. You might think that Matthew would have tried to find something more impressive to conclude his argument, but he knew he had to account for the fact that Jesus grew up in Nazareth and not Bethlehem. We naturally want the best for our kids. I I hope we want the best for our kids. 
especially when they're little, we want to eliminate risks and provide advantages for them, for their success. Jesus certainly had the advantage of being the Son of God, born of a virgin, miraculously conceived in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit. But by God's design, Jesus the Messiah, his Son, would begin his life as a human being in controversy, crisis, threat, and obscurity. Why did God do it this way? He could have said, only the best for my son. He shouldn't have to suffer for what humans have brought upon themselves. He'll start in wealth and royalty from day one. He deserves every advantage. But Hebrews 2 says, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers, the people whom he would save in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation or atonement for the sins of the people. This means that in order for Jesus to be fit to bear our sins, which we need because we have them, we can't be saved without our sins being extinguished, paid for, unless we're going to pay the punishment for them, which is not a good thing because that, that's eternal judgment and that's a horrible thing. So in order for Jesus to be a suitable substitute for us, he had to become like us in every way, except never commit any sins. He had to experience our weaknesses, our vulnerability, and our afflictions. As Jesus was an adult, we can learn from how he trusted and obeyed God in spite of all the opposition, in spite of the suffering, overcoming temptation to follow his own plan, persevering through opposition and suffering and carrying out the mission God gave him. But we can also learn from how faithful God was to him in providing for and protecting him through his babyhood, through his adoptive father, Joseph. In Jesus' helplessness, God delivered the future deliverer, just as he did Moses. God can deliver you and your family as you seek to live for him, to serve him. A couple who I'll call Jim and Mandy, they have a little one-year-old baby. They've been serving Christ in northern Iraq, Kurdistan. They and their baby boy had to evacuate the country back in September when ISIS, the Islamic State, was making their way through Iraq, destroying and killing as they went. They spent some time in Egypt, of all places, doing intense security training. Then they came back to the U.S. for a couple of months, and they write this. We found ourselves getting used to the security and comforts of home, to the point where we find our hearts not wanting to give these things up. Yet we know that Jesus is so much better than these comforts. He is our only lasting hope, our only satisfying treasure. We pray and hope that we might be able to follow our great King, the Messiah, born on Christmas to the ends of the earth. We go because we have a, a home, a kingdom, and a king that no one can take away from us. Neither ISIS nor Al-Qaeda, no one can take that away. We believe God is going to use the atrocities of ISIS and this conflict to bring many of his children to himself. Why did Jimmy and Mandy believe that? Why do they risk going back to Iraq with their one-year-old baby? 
because they have entrusted their lives to Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior King, who left his place of comfort and privilege to become human that he might save a sinful and lost people. They trust the one who opened himself up to the risks of being human as a baby and as an adult. And they're obeying the Savior's last command to go and make disciples of all nations. They know from the scriptures that what man means for evil, God means for good. That whether God saves us from evil circumstances now or not now, but ultimately, they, they trust him. And that's the question before all of us. Do we trust God as we obey him in all of the circumstances that we're facing? Do we have an adequate Savior, Messiah, who really knows what it is to suffer and knows what it is to be opened up to danger and risk, and yet have a God who, who's working it all out for his redemptive and glorious purposes? Whether he allows us to be afflicted in this life or not, and we're all being afflicted at some point or another, we're all suffering. Whether he keeps us to live a full life or whether we die at what we would think an early death, we are 100% eternally secure in Christ. We have to be able to answer that question. Do we really trust and believe that we are totally secure in Christ because of what he's done for us? So I'll pray and we'll see what he does in our hearts. Father, Where are our hearts today in trusting you through the Savior Jesus? You didn't hide the fact that ugly, horrible things happened along the history of Jesus in his early days. Your word presents the ugliness and reality. of The, the reason we needed a Savior, we need a Savior, is because sin has devastating consequences, leading to things like the killing of children and worse But because Jesus has died in our place on the cross, he succeeded in his mission to accomplish his salvation for his people. We have a solid and sure hope that your word is true. That your word, the gospel, is powerful and presents for us a living way, a way of forgiveness of sin and hope and certainty of eternal life and a coming kingdom that the Messiah will indeed one day come and Jesus will return and set up his glorious kingdom. Until that time, Father, we want to be about serving you, serving the gospel, serving one another, trusting you through hard times and praising you in the midst of good times. Thanking you for every good gift that you give, but especially for the life we have in Jesus Christ. And how you didn't do it the way we would have brought a hero into the world. You brought him as a baby, a human baby, and who endured risk and ultimately endured great suffering for us. Thank you, Father, for that incredible gift of life in Christ. It's in his name we pray.